Last summer, we asked people, what's your favorite book about a city? And we got a lot of responses. Some people love Michael Ondaatje's excellent period piece, In the Skin of the Lion, which captures Toronto in the midst of a dramatic turning point. Some recommended Yvonne Bambrick's Urban Cycling Survival Guide as the perfect manual for navigating our cities on two wheels. Point is, there's a lot to explore. If you're hearing this, I sincerely hope you're in a park somewhere under a tree about to dive into a good read. But in case you need recommendations, allow me to present our summer reading series. If you're looking for books, bud, we've got you covered. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from the sandbag beaches of Wards Island, Toronto, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on this, part one of our summer reading series, I can't think of a better way to beat the heat than with a pair of beer experts who have documented the craft beer explosion in Toronto and across the province. We speak to the co-authors of the Ontario Craft Beer Guide. But first, we speak to the author of a children's series about what it's like for kids to grow up in condos. Stand by. I grew up in a pretty pastoral place. Lucky, then, that most of the kids lit out there reflected that lifestyle. There were endless books about growing up on a farm, exploring a forest, fishing with grandpa. You you get the point. But today, over 80% of Canadians live in urban environments. That's exactly where Toronto journalist Jackie Burns is raising her family, and she felt that the dense urban environments of large Canadian cities weren't reflected in the books on offer to kids. And so, the condo kids... Adventures with Bob the Barbary Sheep was born. It's a fun, colorful story about a group of friends all living together on the various floors of their tower home. And we talked to Jackie about the book and about growing up in the city, literally. So, Jackie, first tell me about this book. Who are, who are Noah and Michael and the Condo Kids? All right. So Noah and Michael are based on my two boys who are seven and 10 and they've been growing up in condos their whole lives. And their characters have these relationships with their best friends in the condo that we live in. And in the book, um, they're fictional characters, but they're based on my two sons and their best friends in the building. And they're always getting up to lots of adventures together. Um, So I decided to write a book based on that and their they're really cool lifestyle. I didn't see it reflected in other kids' books, so I thought it might be cool to kind of share that with other people who may not sort of see the, the benefits to condo living. And my kids were having this fantastic life in a condo, and I thought it would be great to have, have that reflected in a kid's book. Yeah, because when I'm thinking about the, the books that I had growing up as a kid, it, they were all sort of uh, pastoral almost. You know, you, you have your old yellers and you have kids, uh, your bridge to Terabithia's kids going off in the woods and having these adventures. Uh, exactly. It's really interesting to see those same kind of adventures play out in a very urban, uh, intensified setting. Mm-hmm. Because not everybody lives in a house. In fact, in Toronto, I think there's 66% of families that live in the downtown core are raising their kids or raising their families in a condo or an apartment. So in Toronto and lots of other urban cities in Toronto or in Canada, this is the, the norm. And most books depict kids living with, you know, a white picket fence, a backyard, they're running down the street to play with their friends when that's not the reality for a lot of children. So it's kind of cool for them to see their lifestyles reflected this way 
And I'd been looking. I'd gone to the bookstores. I mean, um, I know there's, there's, you know, kids' books that are set in New York and in apartments there. But I, I thought in Canada, I hadn't seen any books that focused on this condo living, which is becoming more and more prevalent. So I talked to people in the bookstores if they'd seen anything or heard of anything, and they hadn't. And so I kind of felt like it was a niche that was waiting to be explored. And the uh, the major conflict in the book, uh, without giving too much away, <laughs> is, uh, is, uh, is is something that you could you could easily see being being a conflict of it, for these kids living in condos. Uh, no no one wants a pet. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yeah, so sort of- I know you know a lot of people do raise um, their pets in a condo or an apartment, um, and our condo allows small dogs and cats. But I have just not gotten up the nerve yet to. <laughs> to give my son a pet and he's been on me for years. So in the book, um, yes, my son is desperate for a pet and, and the mother character who's based on me, um, denies her son a pet because they live in a condo. And that was always her excuse for why he couldn't get get a pet. So, um, he decides to take matters into his own hands and sneak a Barbary sheep home from the zoo. And the book is centered around his friends in the building and their escapades with this Barbary sheep, trying to keep it under wraps and trying to, you know, continue having fun with this this new addition to their to their gang without without getting into trouble and, and getting caught so and what I really like about the book is uh, there, there's a sense of community uh, in general but uh, especially with, it, with amongst the kids uh, when mm-hmm. sometimes people when they think of condo living they think of it as this sort of um, you know isolated place where you don't speak to your neighbors mm-hmm. but here, here you've created you, you depict a community with within this sort of condo development well that's one of the biggest surprises for me moving to a condo because I had that impression as well. And I'd always lived in condos before I had kids, but um, I didn't see it as a place that I would necessarily raise kids just because of what I'd always, you know, even subconsciously been been taught about what you do when you have kids. It's you move to a house. So I'd never imagined life in a condo with kids being the way it is. So our reality is um, such that it is like a little village and everybody looks out for each other and there is a sense of community where, you know, other condo moms or dads will look out, look out for your child or, you know, some of the older kids in the building who are 12 and 13, they kind of watch out for my sons and, and play with them um, as neighbors, but also almost like role models. And, you know, there's older residents in the building and they, th- they think it's cool to watch the little kids playing and, you know, if, if they're up to no good <laughs> or if they're doing something they shouldn't be doing, you know, they'll have a quick word with them as well. And, and we kind of respect that. It's, it's like it takes a village to raise a child. And so I love the, f- the fact that, yes, there's that community, but also the independence that you can kind of give to your kids. They kind of get a chance to explore their independence, but it's still in a safe environment which these are all things I did not expect when I lived in a condo with my kids. Beyond, uh, on the flip side, beyond uh, not being able to keep a barberry sheep, uh, <laughs> what are some of the challenges that you, your family, and your neighbors have faced, uh, you know, trying, trying to live this urban, uh, dense lifestyle uh, with, with a growing family? Well, you, you definitely have to... Um, we all have to live together, and not everybody has the same idea of what makes a... a perfect living space so for instance if people are sunbathing out in the common areas and our kids are playing soccer sometimes you know we have to make it so that everybody's happy so maybe take a little break while they're suntanning or you know allow them to you know just 
be aware of their surroundings so they're careful around other people because it is not your private space. You need to be aware that other people are around. And so trying to come to some common ground with residents who have different, um, you know, different things that they want to do using the same space. Um, we, we definitely have, you know, issues between kids sometimes where they just don't get along and that's normal, but, you know, they have to see each other the next day and it's a big group and you don't want, you know, conflicts to go on forever. So you kind of have to work through them and help the kids come up with strategies to solve their differences and, and get along. It's not perfect, obviously. It's like almost like having your siblings. You're going to argue and you're going to get upset with each other. But because you do live under the same roof and you're going to see them, you know, in the elevator the next day or you're going to see them in the back common area um, or in the pool, you kind of have to come up with ways to all get along. And do you find from people who, uh, you know, the this, this city's becoming increasingly unaffordable and, and this condo lifestyle is maybe a way for a, a young family to... to uh, to get a, a foothold in, in this mm-hmm. city without having to move to some suburb. Um, but do you, do you find pushback from some people who, who still idealize that sort of a, a single family detached, uh, you know, lifestyle? The dream. Do this, <laughs> how, how do you do it? How can you, how can you raise a family? I, de- a I definitely feel like it's less so now. I feel like people are starting to realize the benefits to condo living. So there isn't that much, there isn't as much of a pushback as maybe there was a few years ago as more and more people are starting to live this lifestyle. I think it's becoming more acceptable. But I, I definitely feel like it is a great alternative for people who are spending hours a day in their car driving as far away as Shelburne, Ontario. I've even heard people are starting to commute to now, which is an hour and a half each way. And I'm thinking that's three hours of your day. And people are being pushed further and further out of the city. So, you know, condos are definitely a more affordable option than a house in Toronto. And so if it could save somebody that time that they could be spending with their children and, and enjoying the city, the many amenities that our great city has, you know, you don't need a backyard for your kids to have a happy life. There's lots of parks, there's, you know, you've got lots of activities and festivals and you've got the lake, short walk away from the downtown core. So definitely, I mean, for, for us, we found it to be an incredible lifestyle and Obviously, everybody has a different vision for how they want to live their life and raise their kids. But I, I kind of wanted to get the word out that this has been a great experience for us and, and not to sort of, um, not to, I guess, to open your open your um, self up to this as an option. Because in the past, it's definitely been something that people have not even considered because to them there were so many negative connotations to living in a condo or, or an apartment with mm-hmm. a family and I think also there's a lot more being offered in, in the sense that builders are catering more to young families as well so a lot of these new developments that are coming are featuring kids playrooms and crafts rooms and even splash pads and outdoor playgrounds because they're starting to see that more families are choosing this lifestyle whether it's by necessity or because of the affordability compared to a house, but I think a lot of builders are realizing this. So it's going to be an even better environment for families. And so you're finding that the supporting infrastructure around these towers is, is there, uh, you know, the city does struggle, especially downtown, mm-hmm. uh, as we talk about the potential building of rail deck park in the sort of city city place uh, area. Yep. It's, uh, the more people you add up in the air, when they when they come down those elevators, they do need that supporting infrastructure. You're, you're finding that that's keeping pace? It seems like I know the builders that I've talked to for stories that I've worked on, and um, I know the city of Toronto 
in their Growing Up Toronto initiative. They've talked to builders um, and definitely that's happening. And also in terms of, like I said, the larger units in condos that are more attractive to families, the amenities surrounding the condos, the public spaces being designed with families in mind, parks, schools, that kind of a thing. I know that the City of Toronto's um, planning department has been working very closely with builders on that initiative. So I definitely know that it's something that they're spending a lot of time and money on strategizing ways for families to live downtown in a good environment. So I, I definitely think this is something we're going to be hearing more of for sure. And so what's next for the condo kids it's sort of <laughs> set up as a, as a potential series? So the second one is, is done and it's just being put together now. So that will be coming out probably the end of September. It's got a haunted theme. So definitely before Halloween. And uh, I'm hoping to do a third. Well, I will, I will do a third. So we'll see what happens after three. And, uh, but definitely it's, it was a goal of mine to do three in the series. So. Well, Jackie, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Great. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was great. Take a walk through the LCBOs in Ontario, and it's kind of hard to miss the fact that craft beer is having a moment. The aisles are stocked with an incredible, colorful array of offerings from independent breweries all over the province. The City of Toronto has identified this boom as an opportunity to grow the economy and draw visitors. With so much variety, it would be helpful to the casual connoisseur to have some sort of manual. Someone luckily wrote it. Robin LeBlanc and Jordan St. John have developed a compendium of the many craft breweries in Ontario and the various styles these businesses have developed, complete with tasting notes. We ask Robin and Jordan about the Ontario Craft Beer Guide, Brewing History in Ontario, and whether or not Toronto can reach its stated goal of becoming a global leader in craft beer. Okay, first, uh, if you could tell me a little bit about uh, how the idea for putting the book together came. Oh, geez. Well, um, actually, originally it was intended to be a Canadian cider guide. Um, so Jordan and I, we do, uh, every year we go to the um, Ontario Fruit and Vegetable Convention in Niagara Falls, and we judge a cider competition there. And um, we, we just sort of got struck with how much of an emerging um, industry that is. You know, it's, it was going to be great. So uh, we pitched the book to Dunturn Press, and uh, they said, well, that, that'll cost a lot so uh no but um you two are actually very you know highly experienced beer writers uh why don't you write a, a beer guide and we both sort of like looked at each other and pitched it on the spot and here we are and you say in the introduction that uh you, you had sort of uh different different tiers of what makes a craft brewery well you know there are different definitions depending on where you are if you're in the United States, the Brewers Association claims that the uh, craft brewing movement is like small, traditional, and independent. But they keep changing the definitions of small and traditional. So it's very hard to discern exactly what that means, especially if you're in another country. And um, especially, too, just with you know, the so, so many varying definitions out there. And uh, many of them, I find, too, are just um, steeped in ideology, uh, where it's just sort of like little guy versus big guy, you know, and... Um, that's great until you get to breweries like, say, you know, Sam Adams or... Right. You see you a know. little bit of craft washing. A, a, a little bit of that. So, I mean, there, there's so many definitions. But uh, with, uh, with this book, we tended to actually go with any possible uh, definition of craft, you know. That's right. I mean, ultimately, the purpose of a guide is to be on the side of the consumer. 
So you want to give people information about what's on the shelves. It's not necessarily important to look into what the definition of craft is. It's, it's more to be about, you know, what can you buy and is it any good? There are a couple that we've included. Uh, Creamore is owned by Molson and Mill Street is owned by Labatt. And, you know, they have such a long and storied history in the province that they're going to be on shelves and people are going to think that they're craft. So if you have the opportunity in the book to dispel that notion, that's probably a good thing to do. It should also be said, too, just how important both Creamore and Mill Street were in, in the history of, you know, uh, craft beer in Ontario. I mean, uh, you know, here in Toronto, so many brewers uh, got their start slinging, you know, malt bags around for, for Mill Street, and they, they, most of them brewed their first batch of beer there. So it was very important for us to include them as well. Well, let's get into the history uh, a little bit, because certainly Toronto, like many cities, uh, it's, uh, the craft brewery movement is having a moment. What was the history of beer in Toronto like, and, and what are we seeing now? Well, it's kind of interesting. The Brewers tend to be rebellious, if anything. Um, the rebellion is the declaration of it for 1837 is signed in the back of John Dole's brewery at Bay and Adelaide. And the problem is that you've got sort of the family compact and the Anglican organization supported by the British Army. Um, and they're all, you know, entitled to about a penny a day for beer money in 1800, and that keeps going up. And the Methodist brewers in the city basically use Aikido from an economic standpoint in order to turn that beer money into ter- temperance halls and churches and hospitals and things like that. The, the brewers of the city actually end up being important from a philanthropic standpoint. Joseph Bloor ends up donating land that becomes the first medical college in Ontario, I think, um, on Asquith Avenue, just where the reference library is now. And then Enoch Turner and Joseph Bloor, they both donate to the University of Toronto when it's founded, along with Eggert and Ryerson. Um, the actual brewing history, there are a couple of Victorian-era brewers that are fairly storied. Uh, the Dominion had a great deal of success internationally. And O'Keefe, uh, they were enormous, but... The actual brewing legacy is basically untraceable beyond prohibition because everything gets swallowed up into a huge corporation. And then you have uh, aspects of Toronto that were even dry well into the 90s, like the Junction. That's exactly right. And uh, now the Junction is uh, is a very big uh, neighborhood for local breweries. They, they did a cannonball, yeah. Right, so what, what switched? I mean, it seems like, uh, you know, not just in Toronto, but uh, all over the world, uh, the, there's this huge booming craft industry in, in many major cities all over the world. Well, I think several things contributed to that, but I think more importantly... Um, People just started demanding choice, you know, uh, with the way things have been going lately. You know, we're seeing so much choice in terms of our food, our wine, uh, our spirits. Beer was the natural, you know, progression into that. So uh, we're seeing all these amazing, you know, small communities as well as, you know, in Toronto, um, just opening up with their own breweries. Is there a bit of a pride aspect to it as well? Uh, I mean, I could buy many different kinds of beer, but maybe I want to buy beer that supports my local economy. Uh, Well, there's absolutely that, you know, and that that does help. I think an important thing as well is to actually just have a wide-ranging um, selection of tastes uh, to, to go about. There's a number of styles that are out right now, and uh, I really like saying that there is a beer for every moment, you know, and, and we can actually curate that now. And speaking about the local economy, uh, a couple years back, uh, the uh, Economic Development Committee uh, passed a motion uh, and said they, they want Toronto to be the beer, uh, the craft beer capital of the world, uh, ambitious. Uh, but also, we kind of see the opposite in effect a lot of the times where uh, local breweries have to jump through so many hoops and so many complicated zoning laws, uh, making uh, alterations to what can sometimes be 100-year-old buildings uh, just to be up to this uh, code. 
can the city get out of of the brewers' way and 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 actually become the the craft beer capital that they that they say they want to be? They can, and and they do uh, eventually. I mean, that kind of interaction can come down to very specific instance. It can go to the point where you're talking about um, you know individual inspectors having a different understanding of a zoning bylaw than the actual zoning bylaw as, as it exists on paper. So I, I've seen that happen a couple of times. But I'll tell you something else that a lot of people probably don't expect to hear from me. Uh, it's knowing all that stuff is part of the business. You can't jump in with both feet as a brewer having purchased a building and just expect the thing to go your way. Like there's a certain amount of due diligence that needs to take place. And I think that that uh, involves creating a dialogue with the city. I am not entirely sure that they are always uh, anti-brewer. I mean, there are some cases of nimbyism. I think we saw with Left Field a couple of years ago um, the idea that uh, somehow having a really successful brewery in the neighborhood was damaging property values, which is likely not the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was, I think, just a noise complaint, basically. But it became a whole thing, if you recall. And... uh yeah, I, I think like we we've all seen sort of uh, circumstances where um, a brewery in the city opens up sometimes within a year uh, of of the announcement, and then in the cases of some, uh, five to six years. Um, and and with that, it all depends on yeah your your ability to sort of navigate through the bureaucracy, um, work with the city, you know, and and just uh, yeah that that's part of owning a business here, you know? Uh, I know we'd like to say that breweries are very much, uh, we just brew the beer and we don't really have to think about it, but it's not. You have to have many cogs operating at the exact same time in order to make it work. Is it significant for the city to to declare uh, the intention to become a world-class beer city? Absolutely, because I feel that we have the talent to do that. Um, we'll still need, you know, some amount of time, you know, to build up the breweries, and uh, but we're already getting a lot of very skilled brewers just flocking to Toronto. We have a, we have a certain edge uh, as well, being uh, Toronto, we burn through trends at an alarming rate. So to actually have brewers that can keep up with the demands of the public, um, I I think that that's very admirable, not just on a national scale, but an international scale as well. Well, the demands of the public are one thing, but I mean, the demands of the craft beer nerds are, (laughs) wow, you want to see something changeable. I was being polite, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's true. I mean, we, we go through uh, styles from other places very quickly. I think we're in the middle of, what, fruit-flavored milkshake IPAs? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, getting back to the um, the craft beer capital of the world. I believe that was Mike Late uh, who uh, made that pronouncement. And, and Mike's been very supportive behind the scenes. He shows up at, uh, you know, the occasional uh, Ontario craft brewers function. And he really is keeping track of the thing. I mean, there, there is uh, significant intent there. So you know, I think we're going to see progress. It's always good to have somebody on your side at City Hall or at Queen's Park. And if you can find a way to engage with those people in a uh, measured and rational way, that's probably the best way to do it. Yelling doesn't seem to work real good. Something I'd like to ask you, Robin, uh, you, you point out a lot on social media and on your blog uh, about, um, you know, very pernicious sexism that endures in this industry. Um, you, you've pointed out, uh, you know, the, the old cliche of, of the pinup girl uh, as part of the motif for the, you know, the ads and, mm-hmm. and the design of the bottles or the cans. Uh, do you find that uh, as more people get into this industry, uh, preferably a diverse array of people, uh, that, that that can slowly be uh, 
sort of turned around and called out where it needs to be? Um, I certainly hope so. Um, it, it, it's funny because actually like about a couple of weeks ago, um, I was actually having a conversation with someone who um, seriously asked, does sexism still exist in the craft beer industry? And of course it does. <laughs> I, uh, and this was on Twitter. So I think another like myself and another five women in the industry just tackled him uh, with a number of stories, uh, you know, from anything from... Um, you know, having uh, brewing the process of brewing explained to me while I'm there. You know, for the book, not not how they do brewing, but how brewing in general, like we heat water, and how I've been mistaken for um, you know a male colleague's uh, wife or girlfriend. A mm. uh, number of things like that, and um, that person heard those stories and was like, "Oh, well, surely we've come a long way since then." Though I'm like, "No, no, no! All these stories have been in the past six months." So, uh, yeah, I'd really like. Um, to see some more progress on there. I feel that uh, in terms of the call-out culture uh, that's going on right now with social media, we're seeing a lot more anger uh, towards that. I just feel that there's not so much in terms of follow-through or in, in terms of actual response other than sorry, we'll, but we'll just keep on doing what we're doing. Uh, there are a number of breweries that, you know, both in America and Canada and Ontario, all of them, uh, where they come out with some very sexist imagery not intending to be sexist. I'm, I'm, I'm fully aware that it's very much a subconscious thing and no one told them that it was wrong. They just think it's funny, uh, which is, you know, patriarchal, patriarchal upbringing, yada, yada. But then there's been anger over it. And the main response is just to issue an apology. We're sorry that you felt offended by that. Um, the non-apology. And, you know, and, and just absolutely not do anything about it. You know, in the case of, say, Nickel Brook's Naughty Neighbor, the, their main response now is that, um, you know, a burlesque troupe really likes us, so it's okay. And yeah, I mean, I, I share sort of like a, a love-hate relationship with, uh, with call-out culture. I think that, you know, there is sort of a realm where there's some people that are almost uh, professionally offended, I, I guess would, would, would be the word. Um, I'm absolutely for bringing uh, public attention to a company that is making a misstep. Um, you know, whether it's an honest one or a one where they're just being like really crappy individuals, I actually do believe it in that aspect behind the scenes. However, I mean, we, you have a really, really great product and you're doing something that is so lazy and just completely alienating half of a, half of a demographic, you know, come on, we're, we're, we're better than that. And, you know, that's, that's not just in, in sexism as well. That's, you know, um, homophobia, uh, racism. I mean, like in terms of just its representation in the craft beer world, really, you're going that lazy, you know, <laughs> like, like w of all the things, you know, but it's getting better as, as the field, uh, as there's more space to play for everybody. I think what's happening is, uh, not so much that it's, Getting better sounds sort of weird to it, but I feel that, you know, as, as more and more breweries are popping up, um, the ones that are just sort of taking part in that sort of very much bro culture are being drowned. It's also a part of just demography. And one of the frustrating things about craft beer is that, you know, the movement only happens as quickly as the demography changes. So at the moment, you're starting to get, you know, a different sort of group of people coming out to craft beer events. You've got more women and you've got more people from various cultures. You know, Toronto's 51% people who didn't get born here. So it's, uh, it's interesting to watch it change. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a game of shinny. 
Anybody who shows up gets to play. And speaking about, um, yeah, the increasing uh, field, uh, you know, th- this is an Ontario craft beer guide. Uh, is this almost a, a living document at this point? Uh, I mean, you're already on your second edition. Uh, or do you think, uh, is there a roof to this sort of craft beer boom? Well, the, the book is a palimpsest basically from day one to the editorial deadline. You know, we're taking breweries out. We're putting new ones in. If it were an online resource, we'd be basically employed full-time making changes to the thing. And yeah, one of the, one of the most common questions we get about uh, the second edition as well is, um, what did you do with the ones that were previously in, in edition one? Did you just like leave the tasting notes and, and the biography as is? And no, you know, a lot of updates happened for both the sort of like recent ones that opened up a year ago, uh, all the way to the ones that have been there since the 90s. You know, a lot changes in a year. Staff changes hands, uh, flagships change Brewers change, recipes get altered. So uh, it was very important for us to just sort of, yeah, change everything as needed. It's too hot for a closing essay, but I'm happy to let you know you can find The Condo Kids, Adventures with Bob the Barbary Sheep, and The Ontario Craft Beer Guide at the Spacing Store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto alongside many other titles, such as Jordan St. John's other book, The Lost Breweries of Toronto. Books. They're like podcasts, but vintage. Okay, that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please tell your kid's daycare teacher, your librarian, and your trusty Cicerone. If you rate, share, and subscribe on iTunes, you'll help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at track82, all spelled out. Please hit us up with any questions, comments, concerns, and tips on Twitter at Spacing Radio, all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our blog at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. Until next time. Enjoy the islands. Cheers. Cheers.